Well, before Jesus went to the cross, he prayed for his disciples and all future disciples that they would, although they would be left in the world, they would be not of the world. And that phrase turned into a bumper sticker slogan, to be not of this world. In this, Jesus meant he wanted his followers to be set apart wholly from the world in their speech, conduct, actions. But how far should Christians take this? How different from the world should they be? This question has been debated since the very beginning. Everyone agrees that part of the answer is black and white. Anything delineated in scripture as sin is certainly against God's will. And so even though the world indulges, we must be not of this world and and abstain. But what about all those areas that are not so easily defined as sin? What about activities that scripture leaves out? Some might label these as gray areas, meaning they relate to actions not explicitly addressed by scripture. So should Christians participate in them or or not? Is this being part of the world or not? Did Jesus mean we should do nothing the world does or, or what? Just for the fun of it, let's go with a common example from popular culture today. Watching football. Can or should Christians watch football? Now, I imagine most of you never even thought about it, would think, sure, well, I don't see the problem, why not? If you're from Texas, you probably think football is a part of Christianity. <laughs> but you might be surprised to learn there are some Christians who would say no. They'd say football is a sport of violence played on the Lord's Day, and they can't imagine Jesus ever would watch if he were here today. Now, granted, it's a minority view, but who's to say they're not right? Where do you draw the line? Can you watch three hours a day? Is that okay? Or six or nine? What about a Christian who goes to church on Saturday night and then they spend all day Sunday, nine, ten hours on Sunday just watching football? Is that okay? The Bible says absolutely nothing about watching football or even watching sports. So where do you draw the line? Is this part of being in the world or not? And who determines such things? And football is just one little example. The list goes on. Watching TV, watching movies, celebrating Halloween, body piercings, wearing makeup, drinking, smoking, dancing, playing cards. I'll give you a longer list last week. It just goes on and on and on. There's no shortage of issues not mentioned in the Bible. And so there's no shortage of disagreement and debate among Christians. What can and can't you do? Do you abstain? Do you indulge? Is this part of being of the world or not? To make matters more complicated, pretty much everyone thinks they're right. Their ways must be God's ways, and everyone else has got it wrong. But can we do any better than that? Has God told us how to navigate through these potentially gray area issues? And yes, actually, he has. And so starting last week, we've been trying to figure that out. Specifically, we've been discussing Christian liberties. This is a label given to these seemingly gray area issues. The label suggests we're free in Christ to do certain things, and we are. But how far does that freedom go? What are our liberties in Christ? What can we and can't we do as Christians and who says? Again, we're talking primarily about issues that are not mentioned in Scripture. So where is our guidance for that? And that's what we've been trying to figure out. Now, in case you're new here and you're wondering where all this is coming from, we're in between Bible book studies right now and have been doing some Q&A sermons. And a while ago, someone asked a question, about these Christian liberties, the nature of these liberties. And it dawned on me that since I've been at this church, I've never really taught on this subject. And since we've got some time, we're not in a rush, I figured I'd answer this a little more in depth probably than the person asked. But that's what we started into last week. 
And I, I do understand most people, they just want the short and simple answer to their question. And, and most people, they just want to jump to the hot button issues and they want a list. You know, just tell us, is it okay to drink or not? Is it okay to smoke or not? Is it okay to watch certain shows or not? You just want a list. And sadly, I think too many Christians are accustomed to churches just making lists. And so they think that's a good and normal thing. But it doesn't work that way. And there are no lists here. But I want you to see from Scripture why that is and how to navigate these seemingly gray areas. So last time, we spent our time exploring our freedom from the law, the law of Moses. Scripture says we are no longer under the law, but grace. Christ freed us from the demands and the penalty of the law, satisfying them in our place. He also freed us from the burden of the law, which the Jews really got wrong. They saw God's law as the means of pleasing God, to keep these commands, to please him. But that doesn't work. The law only brings God's disfavor because we're sinners. We can't help violating it over and over again. The real good news is that we come into God's favor. We please God purely by his grace, which we receive through faith in Christ. And that leads to a true life of liberty, free from fear and condemnation. That doesn't make it lawless, though. We now have the law of Christ, which is the law of love. So we're still under God's law. It's simply this. Love God, love your neighbor. That, that's pretty much it. But even this we relate to differently now. As we are made new, we're made to desire God, such that now we want to obey him from the heart. And that's what God wants. God gave us his spirit to help us do this. So the New Testament teaches we're not led by the law, we're led by the spirit. And so the not so secret to living the Christian life is to walk by the spirit. To live according to God's spirit, which comes with our new covenant salvation. Now, I know I'm trying to summarize all last week's sermon into two minutes, but look, if you weren't here last week, I would really encourage you, in this case, to jump on our website, download Christian Liberties Part 1, and get that message. Because I want you to see for yourself the biblical foundation of our Christian liberty, which is this freedom from the law. You need to know what that really means, and we covered that last time. But now we got to move on. Like Rod mentioned, we ended with a cliffhanger of sorts. The Christian life, in a way, it's pretty simple. Just walk by the Spirit and then do as you please because the Spirit will never lead you into sin. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. That sounds just really simple. Walk by the Spirit and you're good to go. But that, of course, begs a whole new series of questions like, what, what is that? What does that mean? What does that look like? How do you do that? And so our goal today is to we'll just pick up from where we left off and begin by giving you another little biblical introduction to, this time, walking by the Spirit, talking about what that really means. Then we will finally be able to relate this whole discussion of law and the Spirit to Christian liberties. And we'll get really practical about how the Spirit does lead us to navigate these gray areas. Last time, technically, we covered, number one, the definition of Christian liberty, Number two, the foundation of Christian liberty. And number three, the extent of Christian liberty. And now we're going to move on. Technically, this is number four, the exercise of Christian liberty. If you're a note taker, you care about that. The exercise 
of Christian liberty. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 is where we'll begin today. We need to explore further this whole idea of walking by the Spirit. So this is where we start, Galatians 5. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul makes a pretty big point. How did you come to new birth, to salvation? It was not by the works of the law. It was by faith, where the Spirit made you alive. That's how it works. And so his point is, if we come to new life by the Spirit, don't you think we should continue living our new lives by the same Spirit? Well, yeah, that's a big point. And so, for example, he says, Galatians 5.25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We came to new life by the Spirit's power, and God wants us to continue living this new life by the same Spirit's power. But what does that look like? What does that mean? We'll back, back it up a little bit to verse 16, a, a familiar verse. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So in verse 16, there's a command and a promise. Walk by the Spirit, If you do that, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. The flesh refers to our old, fallen, sinful human nature that exists in rebellion against God. And the flesh, which we still possess, comes with certain desires, basically desires of self, self self-gratification, self-satisfaction, glory of self, so forth. It does not recognize God or honor God. It, It is in rebellion against God. But thankfully now we've been given the Spirit who also comes with desires. Spirit within us desires holiness, sanctification, the glory of God, so forth. So now as Christians, we have two competing sets of desires within us. Before salvation, we were enslaved to the flesh. It's all we knew. But now we've been set free from the flesh. We still have it, but we're no longer enslaved to it. We've also been given the Spirit with His desires. And so now we are told what to do. Walk by the Spirit, and you won't carry out the desires of the flesh. That simply means to live according to the desires the Spirit produces within us. Walking by the Spirit, it's really no different than living according to the desires produced by the Spirit. John Piper helpfully comments here, quote, Walking by the Spirit is what we do when the desires produced by the Spirit are stronger than the desires produced by the flesh. Walking by the Spirit is something the Holy Spirit enables us to do by producing in us strong desires that accord with God's will. End quote. You see, we're creatures of desire. We act according to our strongest desire. To walk by the Spirit, then, is to live according to the desires produced by the Spirit within. Think about this. Why did God even give us His Spirit in the first place, now that, now that we're in Christ? Why did, why did He give us His Spirit? I mean, wasn't justification enough where He like, forgave us all of our sins, He made us perfectly righteous in Christ? Like, Isn't that enough? Yeah, justification is enough to get you into heaven. 
It is. But here we are, we're still left on earth. In God's eyes, we are saved. But until our, our glorification, our sin nature remains, we've been made new, but in this life we're still sinners. So how do we live in this awkward phase where we're saved, but we still have these fleshly desires? What, what are we supposed to do? Well, God gave us some help for that. Specifically, he gave us a helper. That's what Jesus called the Holy Spirit, remember? The helper. The Spirit was given, in part, to enable us to live out our salvation now. We have it, and he helps us to live it out. And that gives us pretty much a preview of glorification. This is what life will look like when we're glorified. Through the Spirit, God gives us a new heart and new desires that weren't there before in our old heart. In case you're wondering, this was always God's plan for the new covenant. Last time I read you a Jeremiah 31 quote of the new covenant. Listen to Ezekiel 36. This was God's Old Testament plan for this new covenant. In verse 26, he says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The promise was always to give the Spirit and cause us to walk in his ways. And see, the Holy Spirit produces in us desires for God that are stronger than our old fleshly desires, and thereby he causes us to walk in God's ways. We're not robots. We still must choose and act and live, but since we always willfully act according to our strongest desires. The Holy Spirit can effectively lead us by influencing our desires. And that's why in Ephesians 5.18, or I'm sorry, Galatians 5.18, verse 18 here, Paul interchanges being led by the Spirit with walking by the Spirit. It's the same thing. And he says, if you are being led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Again, from last week, that means we are free from the penalty, demands, and burden of the law. We still have law, the law of Christ. But even this now is a joy for us. The spirit within produces desire for God, for his ways. So to, to live under the law of Christ, is that a burden or a joy? It's a joy now. We, we want to, and that's what God wants of us. You know, it's against the law to cut down power lines. It kind of makes sense, right? Why would you want to cut down a power line? But, but tell me, do you ever feel burdened to keep that law? Is that like really hard for you to do, not cut down a power line every time you see it? <laughs> no. Why not? Because you know it's in your best interest to not do that and others. And so you happily keep this law. It's not a burden. It's, it's just fine. And so it is for us now as the Spirit produces desires for God's ways. Now, if you keep reading in Galatians 5, verses 19 through 24, Paul expands on this distinction between the law, or rather the flesh and the Spirit. The deeds of the flesh, and you might know that list, that results when you give into the desires of the flesh. And conversely, the fruit of the Spirit, that results when you give into the desires of the spirit within. So we bear fruit when we yield to the spirit's desires 
And that's the same thing as walking by the Spirit. It is just yielding to these new desires within us. Now, regarding these Spirit's desires, what are they? Just I'll just sum it up here with one word. Love. It's no wonder that's the first fruit of the Spirit, love. Also, in the context, look back at verse 13 in Galatians 5. He says, For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the one word is not yourself, it's love, by the way. See, this is why we're free from the law. Because if you are being led by the Spirit, you will be loving God, you will be loving your neighbor. That's the whole point of the law. You're fulfilling the law by walking by the Spirit. So I hope, for some of you this may be brand new, you've never heard this before, but I hope you're with me, I hope you're tracking along. Let's do one more thing now and try and make this even more practical for you. The secret, which is not a secret, to Christian life and liberty is walk by the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit simply means being controlled by the desires the Spirit produces in you. So if you want to know how to do that, how to walk by the Spirit, what you're really talking about is how do you discern, promote, and follow the Spirit's desires within you? How do you discern, promote, and follow the Spirit's desires. And this is where we can take some practical steps. I'm going to be very brief with this, but I'll give you five, just to throw them out there. Number one, pray. Pray to God for discernment of the Spirit's desires and also that he would cause the Spirit to overwhelm you with his desires and not the flesh. Number two, submit. Submit yourself to the Spirit's will. As you discern it, if God deflate your pride, you've got to recognize your own flesh is trying to deceive you and you have to fight against it and willfully submit to the spirit as you discern his desires. Number three, believe. You have to believe that God's ways are best. The spirit's work is always tied to faith. So you must trust the, the spirit to guide you with right desires and acknowledge his role in leading you. You are the follower He's the leader. Number four, study. What do I mean by that? Study. Let me take a minute to explain this one. You're trying here to discern and promote the Spirit's desires within you, right? Well, it's like you're trying to peek into the mind of the Spirit, which is the mind of God. No different. You know, you're asking, what would God lead me to do based on his character, based on his revealed will? Where is he leading me? Well, where would you go to peek into the mind of God? The scripture, of course. And it's no wonder that the command to be filled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18 is parallel to the command to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you in Colossians 3.16. God has given us his word as the primary resource for discerning and promoting those desires of the Spirit within A lot of people think the Spirit and the Word are opposite. Like if you have the Spirit, you don't really need the Word anymore. But they forget who inspired the Word. The Spirit. Who daily illumines the Word as we read it? The Spirit. In the Word, we've been given the mind of God. 
that that's that's what the, how do we know what to do the, the mind of god tells us and so we need to tune ourselves to the word to bear fruit remember what jesus himself said john 15 verse 5 he said i am the vine you are the branches he who abides in me and i in him he bears much fruit for apart from me you can do nothing and then a few verses later jesus ties this to his word he says abide in me and let my words abide in you. This is why Jesus told the disciples that he was going to send the Holy Spirit in the first place. John 14, 26, he said, The Spirit will come and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Spirit was to work through Christ's words. Also Romans 8, 5 says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So if you want to walk by the Spirit, a huge component is setting your mind on the things of the Spirit. Where do you find the things of the Spirit? God has already given them to you in Scripture. So meditate on His Word, and you will see the Spirit's desires getting stronger in your life. I bet a lot of you can attest to that with your personal experience. As you're in the Word, meditating, worshiping, the Spirit's desires are stronger and the flesh's desires grow weaker. This, comes, this leads to the final step, number five, follow. It's really the easiest step, though, because if you're really discerning and promoting the Spirit's desires, you're just going to be doing what you want to do, which is to follow, and you will bear fruit. Pray, submit, believe, study, follow. I know this is a very simplified discussion for the sake of time, but this really is how the Christian life is supposed to work. It's the not-so-secret to overcoming sin. You've got to realize there's a war of desires going on within you. We are justified in Christ. We're saved, yes, but we still have the flesh. And all those fleshly desires, they may never go away until you die. You might have them for the rest of your life, those fleshly desires. There's no promise that those desires will go away. That's not the battle, to necessarily get rid of those desires. The battle is to overpower them with new desires, that of the Spirit. If you have a a glass before you, an empty glass, how how do you get all the air out of a glass? Fill it with water. And so you must overcome, you must crowd out your fleshly desires with the Spirit's desires. And you do this by discerning and promoting the Spirit's desires in your life. That's how the Spirit leads you. And as you follow, you are walking by the Spirit, and then you will bear fruit and overcome sin. You can try and do it by yourself for years. There's many people who do. They try really hard to overcome that sin. They make a list of rules and laws for themselves to keep. But it doesn't work. Only when you come to genuinely desire God more than that sin will you ever see victory and overcome. This is a battle fought with desire. And that's why he gave us his spirit. All right, that'll do it for now when it comes to this biblical introduction to walking by the spirit. I hope that helps, gives you some guidance and introduction to what that means. Now, though, we're going to shift gears and try and relate this whole discussion back to our original subject of 
Christian liberties. But already this gives us the right question to ask. The question most people ask is, what am I allowed to do? It's not the right question. The question you need to ask is, is the Holy Spirit leading me to do this or not? That's what you want to ask. In some areas, the Spirit's desires versus the flesh's desires are crystal clear. For example, read that list in Galatians 5. You can be, for example, 100% positive that drunkenness is not a desire of the Spirit. That is a desire of the flesh and therefore sin. But in other areas, you might not know. You might be wondering, with a given subject or activity, is this desire coming from my flesh or the Spirit? I don't know. It's a legitimate question. It's not always so easily answered. What about drinking in general, for example? Not talking drunkenness, but, you know, a wine or a beer at dinner. Is that okay? Is that desire coming from the Spirit or my flesh or both or neither or what? That's the question you need to be asking for for all these things. And you also now know what you're after. You are after trying to discern, promote, and follow the Spirit's desires in your life. But the question remains, how do you do that in areas where the Bible is silent? Well, do you remember how I said that discerning the Spirit's desires is closely tied to God's revealed mind in Scripture? Well, God has given us the guidance we need in Scripture to discern the Spirit's leading, even in these gray areas. So now we can finally turn to, I guess this is number five, the tests of Christian liberty. The tests of Christian liberty. I mentioned last time we get to Romans 14, so why don't you turn there now? We can leave Galatians 5. Turn to Romans 14. In Romans 14 and 15, as well as 1 Corinthians 6 and 8 and 10, the Apostle Paul especially really breaks down this whole concept of Christian liberties. After building the foundation of our liberty in Christ in Romans 1 through 8, he eventually gets around to discussing the the exercise of that liberty, the constraints of that liberty. We're free in Christ, but we're still bound to the law of Christ, the law of love. So our actions are still constrained in a good way. But how does that relate to all these questions we have? People want to know, can Christians drink? Can they watch R-rated movies? Can they get body piercings? Whatever, the list goes on. We have since rephrased the question, though. The question we're asking is, how can you tell if the Spirit is leading you there or the flesh is leading you there? Is the Spirit producing this desire, or the flesh? That's our question. And the principles from these chapters give us all the guidance we need. Now, I do wish I could go verse by verse through Romans 14 and 15 with you, but we don't have time. I will still, though, present to you the result of studying these chapters and what Paul has to say about this issue. And when you boil it down, what you come away with is basically a series of tests or questions to ask yourself about a given action. In other words, when it comes to Christian liberties, there's no list. There's no one-size-fits-all answer. Different Christians may come up with different right answers based on their maturity level in Christ. 
What matters, though, is that for any given action, you pass these tests, which are simply ways of helping you decipher, is the Spirit leading me there or not? I actually like to picture these tests as a series of doors, consecutive doors. Each door has several questions written on it. As you approach each door, you ask the questions. Only if you can answer them all may you proceed through the door onto the next door. And only if you can make it through all the doors can you be assured that your liberty is free and your conscience is clear. You may proceed. You can be confident the Spirit is leading you or freeing you for this action. If you fail any door, if you cannot pass any question, then you can be sure the Spirit is not leading you there and you should abstain. So I want to present to you these tests of Christian liberty, which I like to picture as four consecutive doors. The door of others, the door of self, the door of the world, and the door of the Lord. It'll make sense when we get into them. But it's just a simple yet practical way of Scripture guiding us on our liberties, to picture it this way. Overall, you'll notice the flavor of all these questions, all these tests, it's basically just love. These are merely ways of specifically applying loving God and loving others to your action because you know the Spirit will always guide you to love, to right and true love. It will make more sense as we get into it, so let's, let's get into it. Door number one is the door of others. At least that's what I'm calling it. The door of others. The door concerning other people, basically. And this first door has three questions written on it. Now, question number one is very important. The question is, does it not stumble others? And you're obviously asking this regarding some action you want to do. And so you ask, does it not stumble others? Will it stumble other believers? Now, I'm going to spend a little extra time on this first question because actually this was our original Q&A question. I forgot when. It's been a long time. But someone asked, originally the question was, what is the balance between exercising our Christian liberties and not causing other believers to stumble? Well, we can finally answer that right now. So the first question you must ask, must ask does it not stumble others? Look at Romans 14, verse 13. Paul says, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything is to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. In the context here, Paul is using the example of meat, eating meat. There were some Jewish believers that came to Christ, but they still were holding on to some of their old dietary restrictions. There were some Gentile believers that came to Christ. They're coming out of paganism, and so they were against meat sacrificed to idols. And so for various reasons, there were some people who, who believed eating meat was wrong, was sin. Now, if you have knowledge, as Paul puts it, is it wrong to eat meat? No, it's not. Like he said in verse 14, nothing is unclean. And he's talking about food. Nothing is unclean. But some people think it's wrong. And so to them, it is wrong. God takes very seriously sin against the conscience. Some people choose to abstain. 
It may be a reflection of their weaker faith, but that's okay. Those who are more mature are not to despise or pass judgment on the weaker brethren. Like we read in verse 13, let us not judge one another anymore. This means you need to accept those weaker in the faith. It also means, though, you must take care not to stumble those weaker in the faith. Like he said in verse 13, and also in verse 20. Like verse 20. He says, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. So you already can tell God takes issue with this whole concept of stumbling other Christians. It's a big deal to God. Now I know what you're wondering. What does that really mean? To stumble someone else? What, what, is, what does that look like? Well, Paul clarifies this especially in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you want... You can keep a finger in Romans 15 and you can jump over, just turn the page to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul is teaching more on liberty and he uses the example of meat sacrificed to idols. And so I'll read for you 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says in verse 4, Therefore concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. Jump down to verse 7. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So he's saying, look, there are some who are mature in the faith and they know better. They know like it's not wrong to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. It's a morally neutral activity. You can do it. But not everyone has this knowledge, he says in verse 7. There are some of these Gentile believers, they're coming out of paganism. They, they associate this as just wrong. Their conscience tells them eating meat sacrificed to an idol, that, that can't be right. Their conscience says it's wrong. And to them, it would be wrong because God treats violating your conscience as sin. Therefore, on the part of mature believers, although they have liberty to eat that meat, they need to be careful that they don't exercise their liberty and in so doing, stumble someone else. But did you notice in the passage what it means to stumble a fellow believer? Most people, they equate stumbling other believers with offending them. In other words, I'll give you an example. Let's say you came from an alcoholic background, but you got saved. Your conscience, though, still tells you all drinking is wrong. You just associate all alcohol with evil due to your past. For you to drink, therefore, for you, would be a sin, because you would be violating your own conscience. But let's say you're out to dinner, you see another believer from church at dinner across the room, godly person you thought, and they're drinking a beer. This offends you. This bothers you, really rubs you the wrong way. This is what most people think is stumbling another believer, but that is not at all what Paul means by stumbling another believer. In that case, the weaker brother may be personally offended, 
That's not what we're talking about by stumbling. So what is it? Well, let's use the same example. This is what it would look like. So you're at the restaurant. You see that other believer drinking. You say to yourself, Man, I, thought, I thought drinking was wrong, but I see that person over there. He's a godly guy. He's drinking. I guess it must be okay. So you decide to go ahead and order a beer too. However, your conscience is still not okay with this. You are torn on the inside. Part of you still thinks this is wrong, but you drink it anyway. And by doing so, you have now sinned against your conscience and you have been stumbled. You have stumbled into sin for you. This is what it looks like to stumble a weaker believer. It is to entice them to participate in something they think is wrong, thereby leading them to sin against their conscience, which God takes very seriously. If you're in 1 Corinthians 8, look at verse 10. He explains, he says, For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? Yes, it will, but that's not a good thing. Verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So again, this is serious stuff. But understand, the weaker brother is stumbled only when he is encouraged to violate his conscience after seeing that other guy eat the meat sacrificed to idols. It is only when he engages in the act that he has stumbled, for then he violates his own conscience. I'll give you another example to just hopefully seal it for you and make it more sense. Let's go with the example of watching nudity on movies or TV. Let's say your conscience tells you this is wrong. This is not honoring to God. Violence on TV, it's all fake. It's just a catch-up and whatever. But nudity on TV, it's real. You're really watching two people commit adultery or fornication or whatever. So your conscience says, that's wrong. And I think, good for you, rightly so. But let's say you follow this popular Christian blogger on the internet, a very strong believer, and on his blog, he just posted this glowing review of this movie that just came out. It's an Oscar, Oscar contender. looks like a great movie. He watched it. He loved it. But it's rated R and it has this one sex scene with plenty of nudity. And so when you read this blog and you, you're like, you think, wait a second, how can that be okay? And so you're offended. You think, that, that's wrong. That bothers me. How could he do that? That is not being stumbled. You are personally offended. And that's a separate issue. You are called to appeal to your brother in such a case. We're going to save that for another discussion. But let's keep going and say that after reading that blog, though, Maybe you get over that initial being bothered and you say to yourself, well, hey, though, if this guy, if he's able to watch this movie, he's a strong believer, you know, I guess it must be okay for me too. So you buy a ticket, you go to the movie, you're in the theater. As the scene approaches, though, your conscience is telling you, this is still wrong. This still feels wrong. You, you shouldn't be here. You shouldn't do this. But you sit through it and watch anyway. Well, guess what? You've just stumbled. You have stumbled into sin. You have violated your conscience. The sin is yours because you violated your conscience. The sin also belongs now to that Christian blogger because his actions led you to sin against your conscience. Both of you, Paul puts it, have sinned against Christ. Again, it's a serious issue. Why? 
because the Lord takes sin seriously. Jesus died to secure a holy bride, and he doesn't want us doing things that lead others into sin. We should be leading others out of sin, not into sin. So with all this in mind, before you engage in any liberty, you need to ask question number one on the door of others. Will it stumble others? Does it cause others to stumble? Might it lead others into sin by violating their conscience? If so, it's not of the Spirit, and you must abstain. Verse 13 in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Wow. You read that, you might think, that that seems unfair. Why should my liberty be restrained on account of these weak believers? The answer is love, right? We said it was going to come down to love. We're free from the law of Moses, but we're still under the law of Christ, which is the law of love. You are to love God more than meat or alcohol or whatever. And you are to love others more too. So if you are truly compelled by such love, you will happily abstain for the sake of those weaker in the faith. Therefore, he says, this is back in Romans 14, verse 16. You can turn back if you want. Romans 14, 16. He says, therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom, it's not eating or drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. When you abstain and you willfully restrict your own liberty for the sake of others, he says you're serving Christ, you are acceptable to God, and you're even approved by men. In other words, you're glorifying God when you choose to abstain for the sake of the weaker brother. Not the end of the discussion, though, because remember, your liberty is only restrained around weaker brethren. You still have the option of exercising your liberty in private. Going back to the drinking example, you go out to dinner with a new Christian couple. They're new in the Lord. They came from a, an alcoholic background. Well, you would be right to abstain and not drink in front of them so that you don't risk stumbling them. But if you're home, you're alone, you're free to exercise that liberty as you please. At the very least, you'll pass question number one. Does it stumble others? If you're by yourself, the answer is no. Now, you might think, that sounds like a, a shady loophole. But actually, no, that it's Paul's counsel. He tells us not to flaunt our liberty before others, but to practice in private if your conscience allows. You have your own. There's more tests for yourself. We'll get to those later. But uh, don't flaunt your liberty before others, but you can practice in private if your conscience allows. Romans 14.22, he says, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction. Before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Also, in 1 Corinthians 10, he revisits the idea of the liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And he says, Look, if you're out and someone gives you a plate of meat, he says, Just eat it. Don't ask questions for the sake of conscience. But he says, If someone complains and says, Wait, that meat was sacrificed to idols, he says, Do not eat for the sake of that weaker brother. The point is, you are free to partake in your liberty in private or around others who are not susceptible to stumbling, but around the weak, you should abstain for their sake. 
Well, I know we've spent the lion's share of our time on just this first question, but it really is the biggest question people have when it comes to Christian liberties. What's, what's up with this stumbling issue? We don't want to cause others to stumble. It's extra important for church leaders who, by nature, they're just observed by more people. You live a little bit in the spotlight in front of other believers, so you just have more opportunities to stumble others without even knowing it. So that's actually why I don't drink, for example. People ask me sometimes, like, why don't you drink? And I never tell them because I'm a Christian. That's the wrong answer. Christians have liberty to consume some alcohol. But I have chosen to willfully and joyfully restrict my liberty on account of who knows how many people will say, pastor's doing it, I can do it. And I don't want someone weak in the faith to be stumbled. And so it goes for all leaders who are called to be examples to the flock. All right, so the first question you need to ask when considering a Christian liberty, does it not stumble others? There are two more questions on the door of others. We're going to do them real quick. Question number two, does it bring peace? Question number three, does it edify? Question two, does it bring peace? Question three, does it edify? Both come from Romans 14, 19, where he says, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do what brings peace. If a given action you want to do, if it's going to stir up strife and conflict among the brethren, abstain. Do not do it. Also, some activities, they may not stir up strife, but they may also not edify either. God wants us to actively build up one another with our actions, not tear down. Back to 1 Corinthians 10.23, Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. And that's what we're talking about here with this whole door of others. The Lord has called us to love our neighbors as ourself. We have great freedom and liberty in Christ, but you have to consider your love for others with any action. Can you exercise your liberty in love for others? You can be 100% certain that the Spirit will not lead you into anything that stumbles, divides, or tears down others. That's some pretty clear guidance. Those desires come from the flesh, not the Spirit. So as you're considering your Christian liberty, begin by asking these three questions on the door of others to help discern the Spirit's desires and the Spirit's leading. Does it not stumble others? Does it bring peace? Does it edify? Only if you can genuinely answer yes to all three questions may you pass through the door and on to the next. But you can't stop there. That's just door number one, test number one. There's still three more doors to go through. The door of self, the door of the world, the door of the Lord. Each of these has their own series of questions you must ask and pass to proceed with your liberty. Well, like what? Well, you guys know me by now. So you probably know what I'm going to say right now. And that you'll have to come back next time to find out. (laughs) This time, I won't apologize because as I thought about it, I really wanted to add in that extra foundation on walking by the Spirit. We needed to cover that. Also, we needed to spend extra time on what it really means to stumble others. That is, I've talked to a lot of people. It's a big question. So I think we needed to cover all this. But truly, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, next time will be our last. We will fully wrap up this discussion. We'll continue with the remaining tests of Christian liberty. I think it will be very helpful for you when you see the whole list of uh, how to know what to do. For now, though, just to close, I encourage you to reflect on and appreciate the law of love that we are under. Your flesh hates this law. Your flesh, my flesh, which remains, is entirely selfish and doesn't want to think about others at all. But you need to look to Christ and remember his selfless, sacrificial love. He came with total freedom, yet he chose to restrict his liberties and he placed himself under sin, Satan, death, and the law on our behalf. And as he gives us new life through his spirit, we are compelled by faith to walk in him, to walk as he walked. First John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's what this is all about. Lastly, Philippians 2, 3 through 5, you might recall, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. He walked through this door first, and we are merely following him as we do so. So let's be encouraged and strengthened to obey the law of love and to love Lord and one another. Let's pray. Our great God of love, we sang of your love this morning and we reflect on your love yet again. We thank you for your amazing love that you showed us even while we were enemies, separated in rebellion in the flesh, you still in love sent your son Christ in bondage to Satan, to death, to the law, becoming sin for us on the cross. Yet you did so, Lord, that you might free and redeem us, free us from the flesh and the law, from sin and Satan and death, and bind us to yourself. Thank you for this redeeming special love that we've received in Christ. Any here who haven't received it, we call them to do so now, to believe in Christ, to be free from their sin and the fear and the condemnation. In Christ, now there's so much liberty. You've given us your spirit within to give us new desires, to, to tell us where to go, to guide us, to produce in us a foretaste of glory. We thank you for this, Lord. May we always consider this law of love and even just today, especially consider others. We are not an island. We are in, in, in the world with many others, and you call us to consider others even more important than ourselves. May we never do things that stumble or hurt others. May we willfully and happily restrict some of our liberty if it will mean the building up and the blessing of others. In all, Lord, as we can be others-minded, you will be pleased. That is how we glorify and love you by reflecting the love which Christ had for us first. So may we do that as we depart from here this morning. We love you, and may we grow in this love for others as well. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.